You're listening to Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio, online. I'm Will Gregerson, Community Services Librarian at Warwick Public Library in Warwick, Rhode Island. Welcome to the American Civil War, a four-part lecture series by Dr. Stanley Carpenter, Professor Emeritus of Strategy and Policy at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Dr. Carpenter is Naval War College Command Historian, a United States Naval officer, active and reserve, retired as captain, 1979 to 2009, a widely published expert on British military and naval history, and the author of three World War II spy novels. Included with the lectures are slides. Click on the links in the show notes to open the slides and move to the next image when Dr. Carpenter says slide. This is part one, A House Divided. I am Professor Stan Carpenter, Professor Emeritus from the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Good day and welcome to the American Civil War, 1861, A House Divided. So this is the first in a four-part lecture series on the American Civil War, and I'll deal today in this first session with 1861, a little bit of the antecedents to the war, uh, why the war broke out, and essentially the first year of uh, actual hostilities. All right, let's press ahead then. The American Civil War, 1861, a house divided. Slide. Well, the Civil War actually settled two issues that had roiled the country since its founding out of the War of American Independence of 1775 to 1783. The first issue, slavery would not exist in the United States anywhere. And secondly, while a federal system with strong state sovereignty would exist, the union of the states would be permanent. In other words, no state could actually secede and in, in essence set up its own country. Or no group of states, as the Confederacy attempted to do, uh, would actually be able to set up its, uh, its own country. So a federal system would exist, but with very strong states' rights and state sovereignty preserved. Slide. Well, let me turn now to some of the um, antecedents of the war. And I want to introduce a term here called the plantocracy. Uh, these were essentially the group of... Uh, large landowners that dominated Southern politics and the economy. And uh, their economy was based largely on commodities. In the Deep South, uh, all the way to Texas, you had cotton was the main cash crop. As you move further up to what was known as the Middle South or the Upper South, that would be North Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee. Uh, tobacco was the big cash crop there. Uh, interestingly enough, the wealthiest city in the world in 1860 per capita was Natchez, Mississippi. And these were the cotton merchants. Uh, the Cotton had become a huge, huge commodity, uh, particularly as the textile mills in the northern states and more particularly in Britain and to some degree in France uh, in the Industrial Revolution really began to uh, fire up the economies there. And they relied upon cotton that came out of the South. So it was a huge cash crop, and uh, it was a, a huge part of the economy. And these relied upon uh, large plantations, cotton especially is a very heavy labor-intensive crop, uh, 
and um, quite frankly, the labor was enforced servitude or slavery. Now, the southern whites um, in the south, uh, primarily in the lower south, uh, uh, about 37% actually uh, own slaves, or 37% of, uh, of white families actually own slaves. In the upper south, it was much less, 20% typically in Virginia and North Carolina. And this was because in the upper south, these were mainly small uh, family-owned farms and not really the larger cotton plantations. So in aggregate, maybe less than about 30% of southern white families actually owned slaves. However, this plantocracy of slave-owning plantation owners did dominate public opinion. Uh, kinship relations were also very important. Uh, much of the population of the South had come from Scotland, from Northern Ireland, known as Ulster, uh, also from uh, uh, various states of Germany. And kinship relations in these societies, uh, deference to whoever was the say the Scottish clan chieftain or whoever was the local uh, aristocrat, were very, very important. And so if the plantocracy said, we're going to establish our own state or our own country, uh, even though uh, the, the majority of uh, white farmers had no real stake in the, uh, uh, the slavery system, they certainly, with the deference, and this kinship relationship uh, would go along with it and very, have very powerful feelings uh, in terms of uh, a secession, uh, if you will. Alrighty, so that's the plantocracy, and they're going to dominate essentially public opinion uh, and, and the economy of the South. Slide. Well, slavery was known as our peculiar institution. Our peculiar institution. King Cotton dominated. It was the main supplier of cotton to the British and French and the northern textile mills by the mid-19th century. And um, as I mentioned earlier, it needed a reliable, heavy labor force. And that, of course, became slavery out of Africa. Uh, the first uh, African slaves actually arrived in Virginia. That would have been the, the Jamestown, Virginia settlement uh, in 1619 on a Dutch merchantman. Now, interesting aspect about slavery. Uh, there were a number of black slave owners. For example, in 1860 in New Orleans, it's estimated 1,800 black slave owners. And these were mainly uh, uh, freedmen or, uh, in many cases, blacks that had actually never been a slave. So slavery was not just a, a, a racial thing, white versus black. Um, there were a number of uh, slave owners who were black, and in fact, uh, there were slaves in the northern states, although much less common, and particularly as the 19th century progressed, uh, almost non-existent. However, uh, even as you get into the middle states, uh, uh, you did see some human slavery. Now, the middle states, Maryland, Delaware, Kentucky, Missouri, and later West Virginia, which uh, was established in 1863, uh, those were also slave states. Uh, but because they were, if you will, caught in the middle between the North and the South, uh, those states uh, chose not to actually go out in uh, secession from the Union. However, slavery became the chief symbol of that growing divide over economics, over political power, and over states' rights uh, that really emerged uh, in full throat 
by 1860, but it's something that had been brewing literally since the establishment of the United States in the previous century. And uh, that's uh, the topic I want to turn to now. Slide. Well, here you see a map of the United States about 1820, the Missouri Compromise, 1820. This was a bill put forth and supported by Henry Clay from Kentucky, and he was largely responsible for this compromise bill. The idea here was if you added a state that allowed slavery, you had to add a state that was a non-slave state. And the idea here was it was designed to maintain the balance of power in the U.S. Senate and somewhat less, though, still important in the House of Representatives. The Compromise Bill of 1820 prohibited slavery in the former Louisiana Territory that had been purchased from um, the Napoleonic French Empire uh, in the first part of the century. So it prohibited slavery in this territory north of the 36, 30 degrees north parallel. Uh, except within the boundaries of that proposed state of Missouri. Maine, as a counterbalance, was admitted as a free state, and Maine had actually been part of uh, the Massachusetts up until this point. So you created two new states, one slave and one non-slave. Missouri Compromise, 1820. Slide. I mentioned earlier that there was a lot of um, controversy really growing up literally since the founding of the country. And one of the first big waypoints in this build-up to the outbreak of violence and secession was the nullification crisis of 1832. And this was a sectional crisis during the presidency of Andrew Jackson, 1829 to 37. Interestingly enough, um, President Andrew Jackson was a Southerner and a slave owner, he um, was born somewhere on the border between North and South Carolina uh, and emigrated to Tennessee, and so he was essentially a, a Tennessee politician. In the uh, 1832 time frame, South Carolina declared the Ordinance of Nullification. And what this was all about, South Carolina declared that by the power of the state, that those federal tariffs of 1828 and 1832, which were placed on goods coming in primarily from, from Europe that the South relied upon, were unconstitutional and therefore null and void within the sovereign boundaries of South Carolina. Uh, that tariff of 1828, the federal tariff, was known to its detractors as the, quote, tariff of abominations, end quote. And what it did was it imposed a, a high tariff on raw materials consumed by New England, such as hemp, flax, molasses, uh, iron, uh, cotton products that came out of the South. So clearly this very severely hurts uh, South Carolina's export of raw materials to the North and especially cotton to the growing mills of uh, Britain and France. Well, President Jackson threatened to send federal troops in to collect the tariffs and this caused South Carolina to back down. But what the tariff or the nullification crisis of 1832 was all about, it was one of the early series of issues in terms of states' rights and state sovereignty uh, that are really going to roil um, the country in that first half of the 19th century. Slide. Well, now we move on to the Compromise of 1850, and here you see another map of what the United States looked like in 1850. 
This compromise bill was brokered by Stephen A. Douglas and Henry Clay, and it was hoped that it would settle the state of slavery in new territory, one from Mexico, uh, as a result of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ended that Mexican-American War of the, the 1840s. So huge, vast amount of formerly Mexican, formerly Spanish territory, as you can see there, and uh, so you needed another compromise bill. Uh, one of the key uh, points of the, of the compromise bill was it strengthened the federal Fugitive Slave Act. But in exchange for that, it allowed California in uh, as a free state. It also reversed the Wilmot Proviso, uh, which had outlawed slavery in new territories. That was a, a bill in Congress from uh, just uh, after the war, the Wilmot Proviso. It also established popular, popular sovereignty in the new territories. And what that meant was the citizens of a new territory and eventually a new state would determine themselves whether they wanted to be slave state or free state. So with all these compromises, uh, it seemingly settled the slavery issue, but really only temporarily. Compromise of 1850. Slide. Well, now we get into the late 1850s and the presidency of James Buchanan the 15th president, 1857 to 61. He was a Democrat from Pennsylvania, but he was often called a doe-face, which was a derisive term for a northerner with southern symphonies, sympathies. Um, Buchanan sought to keep the both sides together. He opposed secession as illegal, but also that using force to uh, enforce secession or against secession was also illegal. And ultimately, by this time, uh, Buchanan was unable to forge any sort of compromise. So as we get into the late stages of uh, the Buchanan presidency, you really begin to see things starting to heat up uh, by 1860, and particularly the election of 1860. Slide. Well, as a result of that uh, compromise of 1850, which, remember, a key point here is popular sovereignty, that the citizens vote and decide whether they want to be a free state or not. And this is going to set off a pretty violent period known as Bleeding Kansas. Bleeding Kansas. It was an internecine uh, violence that broke out in the territory of Kansas uh, before it was a state between the pro- and the anti-slavery forces. lasted for about seven years, 1854 to 61. And it was prompted by an yet another bit of legislation known as the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. Now what this Compromise Act sought to do is it permitted each newly admitted state south of the 40th parallel to decide whether to be a slave state or a free state. And it literally divided the former Indian Territory into what became the states of Kansas and Nebraska but it main mandated popular sovereignty. And so that meant that the settlers moving into those new territories or eventually new states could vote on whether or not to be a slave state or a free state. Well, as might be expected, pro-slavery forces um, argued that every settler had the right to bring his own property in, which, of course, included slaves. The anti-slavery uh, folks, known as free soil forces, uh, said that the rich slave owners would buy up all the good farmland and work them with black slaves, 
leaving little or no opportunity for non-slaveholders. So right away, you, you throw in this whole uh, abolition of slavery versus uh, continuation of slavery. You throw in popular sovereignty. Uh, you throw in uh, the economics of this whole thing, and violence erupted. And it literally lasted for uh, about six years. And this also brings in a character uh, known as John Brown. He was an ardent, vitriolic, if you will, abolitionist. And by vitriolic, I mean he was willing to commit great violence uh, on behalf of abolition of slavery. Now, he arrived in 1855 from Ohio, and he began to stir up trouble pretty much right away. Slide. So, bleeding Kansas. Um, by the late 1850s, you had many, many, many pro and free settlers flowing in and establishing residency, or in some cases, uh, just coming across the border primarily from Missouri just to vote. So this whole business of uh, voter fraud, if you will, ballot manipulation is really nothing new. It had happened before. Uh, it resulted in two separate legislatures being elected, two separate state constitutions. And you had groups called the Border Ruffians, who were pro-slavery, and they mainly poured in from Missouri. Uh, and then you had a lot of uh, folks, primarily from New England, that came in that were abolitionists. Uh, so a great deal of voter fraud going on with these groups. Elections had to be nullified. There were sporadic outbursts of violence, really, until federal troops were sent in from Fort Leavenworth. If you know anything about Fort Leavenworth, it uh, sits pretty much right by Kansas City, Missouri, Kansas City, Kansas, in that eastern part of the state. So John Brown fled uh, by 1859, and he plotted to raise an abolition of slavery rebellion, and his target was Harper's Ferry, Virginia. Now, Harper's Ferry is now in West Virginia, but at the time it was uh, in Virginia, uh, about 50, 60 miles west of Washington, D.C. In this rebellion, 56 were killed, uh, and this became a touchstone for slavery versus abolition of slavery. Now, Horace Greeley, who was editor of the New York uh, Tribune, and you might know him as the author of that famous phrase, go west, young man, that he coined in the 1840s, he coined the term also bleeding Kansas. So let's turn now to John Brown and his activities in Virginia. Slide. Well, before I talk about that, there was yet another uh, waypoint, if you will, along the, uh, the path to civil war, and that was the Dred Scott decision of 1857. It was a court case, Dred Scott, who was the slave, versus Stanford. Uh, Scott uh, was taken by his master into New York, which was a free state, and Dred Scott then sued for freedom, claiming that he was no longer subject to slavery in a free state. The case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, uh, and it ruled that blacks, free or slave, could not be U.S. citizens and therefore had no standing to sue in federal courts. Uh, the decision also ruled that the federal government had no power to regulate slavery in the federal territories acquired after the creation of the United States. And Chief Justice Roger B. Taney who I believe was from Maryland, hoped that this would permanently settle the slavery issue, but all it really did was rouse further abolitionist sentiment. 
you have at the same time going the Panic of 1857. And this was essentially a, a recession, an economic recession, that was roiled, if you will, by the uncertainty of violence erupting in the West. Uh, the markets went berserk. So, in effect, the Dred Scott decision uh, permitted the unhindered expansion of slavery into the new territories. And that, that's why it's critically important. Slide. So back to John Brown. John Brown believed that the only way to end slavery was armed insurrection. And so in October 1859, he organized and conducted a raid on the Federal Army at Harp, Harper's Ferry, Virginia. So he took a small band of family, supporters, and a number of freed and runaway slaves uh, into the armory. And the plan was to seize the arms there, arm and incite a slave uprising in the Shenandoah area of Virginia that he hoped would spread to the rest of the South. Well, the reaction by the locals uh, was pretty fierce, and they cornered the insurgents in the armory. Seven people were killed and several were wounded. Well, at this point, the federal government reacted and sent in um, the U.S. Marines, but commanded by an army colonel, interestingly enough, Colonel Robert Edward Lee. Now, Brown was captured, convicted of treason, convicted of murder and inciting slave revolt, and was hanged in December of 1859. Well, this uh, event, and particularly his hanging, sparked a huge controversy throughout the country. Uh, Southerners accused the Republican Party uh, uh, of inciting riot and inciting slave revolt, and it had huge implications for the upcoming 1860 election. The tune John Brown's Body became a popular abolitionist tune, and in fact, uh, in the Union Army, it was, a, it was a popular marching tune. Slide. So here we see the United States in 1860, at the time of the 1860 election. Slide. So let's turn now to that election of 1860. It was a very high voter turnout, 81%. Uh, that was somewhat rare in those days and maybe even rarer today. The Democrats actually split into three factions. Uh, John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky was favored uh, in the slave states. Stephen A. Douglas of Illinois was popular in the free states but lost Southern support. And John Bell of Tennessee, who was pro-slavery but not for secession, he was more popular in the Upper South with uh, the Unionist sentiment. Uh, it's, it's not known, uh, well known that there was a tremendous amount of Union sentiment in western North Carolina and eastern Tennessee. So in the Upper South, the whole idea of secession uh, was not really that popular, and it, it really took a series of reactions on the part of the federal government um, to cause those states to actually secede. So, Lincoln won the Republican nomination, and he won the Electoral, electoral College, mainly because the Democrat uh, Party was split into really these three factions. Uh, Lincoln carried all of the northern and western states. Many Southerners threatened secession if Lincoln was elected, and South Carolina followed through with that first threat. Slide. So here you see a map of the 1860 election. Uh, Bell won the Upper South, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia. Douglas won only Missouri, 
only Missouri. Breckenridge took all of the rest of the South, and Lincoln took all the North and the West. But by the electoral, electoral college system, uh, Lincoln was elected president. Slide. So, South Carolina reacted. They took the first action. In December, in fact, the day before Christmas, December 1860, uh, the South Carolina legislature declared this bill, the Declaration of the Immediate Causes Which Induce and Justify the Secession of South Carolina from the Federal Union. And it made the argument for states' rights. It argued that the northern states were not fulfilling their constitutional obligation by failing to enforce the Fugitive Slave Act, which required runaway slaves to be hunted down, captured, and returned to their owners. So seven states declared secession prior to the Lincoln inauguration in the winter of 1860-61. And these seven states were known as the Gulf Squadron. So you can figure out who that was. Florida, uh, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas. The, those states that really bordered along the Gulf of Mexico. Now following the Lincoln inauguration, several southern states, particularly the other south, uh, upper south, offered to pay for confiscated property and the Gulf Squadron offered a treaty with the United States, which Lincoln refused to negotiate, period, claimed the Confederacy was not a legitimate sovereign government. And so that impasse is it's what's really going to set off um, this series of events in the spring of 1861. Slide. So the Confederate States of America were officially established on the 4th of February, 1861. Uh, within those states, they took control of all the federal forts and other properties with very little resistance. Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor was a notable exception. President Buchanan declared the North was intended to be perpetual, but the power of force of arms to compel a state to remain in the Union is not among the enumerated powers granted to Congress. Well, Jefferson Davis of Missouri, he was a former senator, a former Secretary of War, he was elected the provisional president of the Confederate States of America. Uh, Alexander Stevens of Georgia was elected as vice president, and the new Southern Constitution was closely modeled on the United States Constitution. Slide. So here is a photograph from the Jefferson Davis inauguration in Montgomery, Alabama in 1861. Davis was inaugurated on the 18th of February with Stevens as the vice president, but there was not happiness between the two. They often collided and disagreed on policy. Davis was actually too much of a micromanager. Uh, he lacked the ability to delegate authority. Uh, one of the biggest areas that he, uh, that he got involved in was determining military strategy. But it never really hit on a successful plan. And one thing to remember about Davis was he did have a lot of military experience. He had been a, a major commander in the Mexican War, so he actually had battlefield experience, and he had been Secretary of War. So uh, he assumed that he would be able to uh, derive and determine the military strategy of the South. Slide. So they established the initial capital, then at Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, Capital of the Confederacy, the Gulf Squadron. Now, once Virginia seceded, 
they moved the capital to Richmond, Virginia. This was May of 1861. Strategically, that meant that the two capitals, Washington, D.C., Richmond, Virginia, were apart by only about 100 miles. And therefore, they became strategic objectives for both sides, capture the other side's capital city. And that was considered at the time uh, essentially a war winner. You capture the enemy's main base, their castle, their, their city, their capital city, that meant you'd won the war. So these became huge strategic targets. Now Davis was finally elected to a full six-year term in November of 1861 with the capital in Richmond. Slide. Well, what about Abraham Lincoln? And here you see a photograph of his inauguration in March of 1861, the 4th of March. In the speech, he argued that the Constitution was a binding contract and that any secession was legally void. He declared he had no intent to invade the South or end slavery per se, but he would force, uh, use force to maintain possession of federal property. He would not interfere with slavery, quote, where it existed, end quote. That's a very important point because what you see as time goes by, the, the whole abolition of slavery uh, was not initially a, a United States or federal uh, objective, policy objective, but clearly as the war advanced, it became abolition of slavery, became uh, a fundamental uh, war objective. So you need to track that particular aspect as it goes along. But initially, it wasn't. Preservation of the Union was the key political objective in early 1861. Slide. So what happened? Well, President Lincoln determined to hold the remaining federal forts in the South, especially Fort Sumter, which sits in Charleston Harbor. Here you can see the map. Uh, surrounded by uh, a number of batteries and fortresses that were constructed by South Carolina troops. And essentially, they could catch Fort Sumter in a crossfire from multiple directions. There were attempts in February to reinforce and resupply it by sea, which failed uh, simply because the ships could not get past these fortifications. So Sumter was isolated and cut off from any aid or reinforcement. Slide. The commander of Fort Sumter was Major Robert Anderson, who was from Kentucky. Well, Lincoln ordered uh, Anderson to hold on until fired on, and Anderson gave a conditional reply to Davis's demand, which was rejected. Davis ordered the firing on to prevent reinforcement. So this is what set in motion the, um, uh, the attack on Fort Sumter. Slide. Well, here is a famous personality, P.G.T. Beauregard, Pierre-Gustave Touton Beauregard from New Orleans. He was in command of the Confederate forces in Charleston. Now, he was an Army uh, veteran. He had been appointed, in fact, superintendent of the uh, United States Military Academy at West Point uh, earlier in 1861, very briefly, uh, because uh, when Louisiana seceded, he came south and was appointed as the first Confederate general officer. So he took command at Charleston on the 1st of March, 1861, and immediately set about building defenses pretty vigorously. PGT Beauregard. 
slide. So now we move into April, the night of the 12th to the 13th of April, 1861. Confederate forces bombarded Fort Sumter for 34 hours. In fact, the uh, cadets at the Citadel, which is that famous uh, military uh, school there in Charleston, manned many of the guns. Anderson was forced to surrender. As a result of the Fort Sumter bombardment, President Lincoln called for 75,000 volunteers and then later in May a further 42,000. Lincoln's reaction induced the upper south states, particularly Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and then Arkansas, to secede and join the Confederacy. And that was when the capital was moved to Richmond. Slide. Well, as a result of the Fort Sumter affair, public support grew dramatically in the North. Public support against the South mobilized. Uh, for example, there was a mass gathering on the 20th of April, 1861, in support of President Lincoln's administration and his stand on secession. Slide. So, where did it stand by April and May of 1861? And there you see a political map of the United States at the time. So now you had 11 southern states that uh, formed the Confederate States of America. Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, Arkansas, and Tennessee. I mentioned earlier that even though they were slave states, those border states of Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, Delaware did remain in the Union. But what's interesting about the border states is they were roughly split 50-50 on the issue, and in fact many units, military units from each border state uh, fought in the various armies. So it was not unusual, for example, to have a Maryland regiment fighting against a Maryland regiment. A uh, great deal of internecine violence uh, erupted, especially in Missouri. Uh, West Virginia broke away from Virginia in 1863, I mentioned earlier. Slide. Well, the North had huge advantages in population and in the ability to raise and mobilize troops. And here you see some population figures from 1860 uh, from the census. The Union, 22 million to the South, 9 million. Uh, and that resulted in the ability to mobilize and raise troops. So there you see the numbers. The North, 2.8 million to the South, 1 million. So right uh, from the beginning, the South was pretty heavily outnumbered in terms of uh, troop count slide. Well, it wasn't just human personnel. It was also the ability to logistically support armies in the field. And that's really a function of industrial output and also railway mileage. So if you look at the industrial capability of the North, it gave the North a huge advantage. Uh, the Industrial Revolution by this time was in full force, particularly manufacturing. But the southern economy, as I mentioned earlier, still very agrarian, uh, commodities-based, it, it relied on producing those commodities to sell on the world market. For their manufactured goods, the South largely relied on the imports of goods from Europe and from the North. Now, there were very few major ironworks for the production of artillery and weapons in the South, uh, the Tredinger, uh, Tredinger Ironworks in Richmond, 
maybe the most famous, uh, but there were some steel mills around the city of Birmingham, Alabama. Now, New Orleans was a major trading port for commodities. And as you might imagine, New Orleans became a key target for northern operations very early in the war. Now, if you look at the slide here, you see the industrial output uh, in the north in 1860, uh, 110,000 manufacturers to the south, 18,000. And the value of the production favored the north by a 10 to 1 margin. You look at railroad mileage in the north, almost 25,000 miles to the south, about 9,000 miles. Tactically and operationally, uh, railways are going to become huge in the war, as I'll talk about as it progresses. Slide. Let's turn now to the military aspect. Well, you've declared that secession will not stand. Uh, you call for the outpouring of volunteers, the mobilization of military forces. So let me turn now to General Winfield Scott, who was Commander-in-Chief of the United States Army, very elderly by this time. He had fought in the War of 1812. Uh, he had made quite a reputation as a commander in the uh, Mexican War, particularly his capture of Mexico City, which was regarded as the famous British Duke of Wellington, Victor at Waterloo, as one of the greatest military achievements in history. Now, Scott was known to his troops as Old Fuss and Feathers. He was a native Virginian, but he stayed loyal to the United States. The problem was his age. He just simply was not physically capable of taking the field, and eventually he was pushed out of command and forced to resign by November of 1861. One of the problems, and this is just age-related, uh, is he tended to fall asleep in uh, meetings. Probably not a good plan for your commander-in-chief. Winfield Scott, slide. Scott's great contribution to the war really was his strategic planning. Uh, it was derisively known as Scott's Great Snake, the Anaconda Plan, uh, capturing that image of the, the constrictor snake just squeezing the South to death. So Scott's strategic plan was to strangle the South, cut it in half down the Mississippi River. In other words, cut off the Trans-Mississippi, that area west of the Mississippi, which would include uh, Arkansas, Louisiana, Missouri, Texas, just cut that off from the rest of the South. Then use naval power to blockade, to cut off logistical support coming from Europe and to crush the Southern commodities. Now, remember, with a commodity-based economy, if you can't export to your customers, uh, you have a severe uh, logistical problem there and an economic problem. Now, the first real event was the first battle of Bull Runner Manassas, which I'll turn to shortly. Uh, essentially, the plan was dropped. But if you look at what happened after 1862, really the Anaconda plan actually played out in great part. Uh, the North did impose a strict maritime blockade. They did take complete control of the Mississippi River and cut the South in half. And a third part of this strategy was to threaten Richmond. And so this is going to these three uh, aspects of the northern strategy, which really grew out of Scott's Anaconda Plan of 1861, 
is really what's going to drive northern strategy and southern reaction for the rest of the war. Slide. So here's a synopsis uh, of that Union strategy. It was a four-part strategy that was laid out by Scott. It was extremely successful by 1865. And so the lecture series, as I go along year by year, will demonstrate uh, the unfolding of this uh, uh, strategy year by year. So just to provide a synopsis, first part, capture Richmond. I mentioned earlier the importance of capital cities. Secondly, split the Confederacy by seizing the Mississippi River. A third part, seize Chattanooga, which was a hugely important rail junction at the time, and divide the deep southeast of the Mississippi River. This is going to actually result in uh, General Sherman's Georgia campaign of 1864 to 65. And then a naval blockade to strangle the South economically. Well, how did the South react? This was Jefferson Davis's strategy. We'll call it an offensive-defensive strategy. It really had three parts. First part was to defend the Confederate homeland, to use interior lines of communication, which means you have the ability uh, within the battle space to move troops and logistics uh, around uh, to wherever the, the need was or wherever the threat was. Interior lines of communication. Secondly, called for using interior lines of communication to concentrate against wherever the invading force uh, was causing a threat. And thirdly, if the opportunity presented itself, go over to the offensive, even to the point of invading the northern states. And this actually played out a couple of times with uh, uh, General Lee and the invasion of uh, Maryland in uh, the fall of 1862. And that resulted in the battle at Antietam. And then in the summer of 1863, that resulted in the Battle of Gettysburg. And I'll discuss both of those events as we go down the road. Here, I think, is the main problem with the Confederate strategy. There's an old maxim in the military that says, he who tries to defend all defends none. And if you look at the ability to raise forces, to logistically support them in the South, where they were severely outgunned, outmanned, outlogisticized, if that's a word. Uh, if you're trying to defend every point against that type of force, you're bound to lose ultimately. It becomes simply a war of attrition. And so just from a strategic viewpoint, uh, this was a huge detriment to the South. And by the way, let me highly recommend a book if you're interested in the uh, various strategic plans and thinking of each side of the Civil War. Uh, I highly recommend a colleague of mine, Professor Donald Stoker, uh, who is now retired from the Naval War College, uh, and his great book, The Grand Design, Oxford University Press, came out about 10 years ago. An uh, outstanding book that discusses the, uh, the strategic thinking and the strategic execution of both sides. Slide. So, if you're going to invade the South and force the, the Southern states back into the Union, you better build a huge army. And this was the Grand Army of the Republic, uh, which, by the way, since we're in Rhode Island, Massachusetts area, I think uh, Route 6, um, around through Swansea, whatever, that technically is known as the, the 
Grand Army of the Republic Highway. Well, Fort Sumter spurred calls for recruitment on a massive scale. A number of state militia regiments were federalized. This, by the way, was the uh, forerunner of the uh, modern National Guard that, that actually came about in the early 20th century, these state militia regiments, uh, which were actually formed part-time. Uh, they drilled part-time. They exercised part-time. But now they're formed into actual federal, um, federal units, and they're known as volunteer regiments. And they were raised in great numbers. Here was a problem with these units. Very prominent business and political persons were given commissions as generals and colonels if they could raise large numbers of troops. Now, while you did get some very good officers who did have some military experience, uh, who were coming back on active duty, the two examples I think of right away would be William T. Sherman and uh, Ulysses S. Grant. But by and large, most of these early senior officers were given their rank based on their prominence as business or political leaders. Uh, and so at least for the first couple of years of the war, the northern forces really lacked a lot of effective leadership. And that led to many inappropriate and just simply downright bad senior officers initially. Now generally by 1863, most of the poorer political generals had either been washed out forced to resign, or relegated to more appropriate uh, positions and not actual combat positions. Interestingly, in the South, it was a completely different uh, situation. There, since they were raising forces that were, uh, that were outgunned, outmanned, literally from the ground up, uh, the cream had to rise to the top very quickly. And so a number of mid-level officers or Senior officers such as uh, Thomas Jackson or Robert E. Lee, uh, they very quickly rose to the top through talent. Now, by 1863-64, that talent level at the top pretty well evened out. But certainly, you see from the first couple of years of the war, uh, the Union Army really suffered from uh, a dearth, if you will, of, of effective senior leadership. Uh, just an interesting side note here. Uh, talking about uh, state militias and, and militias in general. Uh, interesting story from Scotland in the mid part of the 15th century. King James IV actually banned the playing of golf. Well, why did he do this? Well, local militia, just like they do today with reserves and National Guard, you show up one weekend a month and do your drill and training and then you do some active duty time, typically in the summer. Well, what was happening in Scotland is, uh, is the men would show up, they would fire a few arrows, uh, and then they would, um, they would then uh, retire to the golf course to play a few rounds. And so they weren't really getting in their required training. Uh, that didn't last long, and uh, golf, as we all know, uh, grew and expanded to, to be the game it is today. But in uh, the mid-15th century, King James of Scotland attempted to ban golf. Slide. Well, if you're going to fight a war, you've got to have the instruments of war. And uh, so let me turn a little bit to the state of weapons technology at the time, because this is going to have a huge impact on the results. Remember that you're still in the age of the what we call linear battle, where because of the uh, 
lack of uh, range and lack of accuracy and lack of time it takes to load weapons, think military muskets, uh, you still had linear warfare where men lined up close together and operated as a unit, usually in very close quarters with the enemy. Well, what happened by the Civil War is you began to get much more efficient uh, weaponry. And here's a good example of it, the Springfield Rifle, Model 1861. Uh, it used a percussion cap to ignite the main charge. Now, what this meant was... It was fulminate of mercury, it's a little cap. When the hammer struck this, it would spark and that would set off the main charge. It was still muzzle loading, but it was rifled. And rifling gives much more greater range and, and accuracy uh, in a weapon. Also, about this time, you saw the mini ball or the Minet. A Captain Minet from the French army in the 1850s invented this thing. And if you look at the picture there, um, you can probably see that the, uh, the base is essentially um, convex. Well, the idea was once the blast or the charge goes off, it pushes the bullet out, but it also causes that base to expand. And that base expanding then catches the rifling groove, and you can just imagine how much more accurate that is, as opposed to the old, the old uh, round ball. Uh, of the uh, smoothbore musket that would rattle around and who knows what it would hit once it went down range. So the Springfield rifle, uh, Model 1861, this is what the northern troops were mainly armed with. Well, the southern troops, slide, the southern troops uh, had a lot of these things. The uh, pattern 1853 Enfield rifle imported from Britain. And these probably were the most superior uh, military weapon of the day. Um, the 1853 Enfield rifle, very popular with the southern troops. Slide. So now let me turn to the first big, big event, the first battle of Bull Run, also known as First Manassas. And this occurred on July 21st, 1861, near the little town of Manassas, Virginia. Now the Northern public clamored for a march against the Confederate capital of Richmond, and this then resulted in that first major battle of the Civil War. Uh, Union forces were slow in positioning themselves, and this allowed the Confederates to reinforce uh, by rail. I mentioned earlier the importance of uh, the railways. Now you're beginning to see it play out. So each side initially started with uh, about 18,000 poorly trained, poorly led troops, um, but more troops began filtering into the battlefield as, as the, the day uh, went on. Uh, the Confederate victory was followed by a disorganized retreat, really more of a rout of the Union forces. And uh, so now let me turn now to some of the details. I'm not going to discuss the details of individual battles except the major ones that, that were really were major turning points or, or major events. But let me turn now to First Bull Run or First Manassas because I think it gives you a pretty good sense of how battles evolved and, and how, they, uh, how they actually operated in the Civil War. Slide. Well, here is uh, General Irvin McDowell uh, yielding to political pressure. Uh, he led his unseasoned Union Army across Bull Run Creek against the equally inexperienced Confederate Army, now commanded by General Beauregard. 
So McDowell was the commander of this Union force. Beauregard was encamped near Manassas Junction, which was a rail junction. Uh, McDowell had been appointed by Lincoln to command the Army of Northeastern Virginia. That was its first name. It's eventually going to become the Army of the Potomac. But initially it was known as the Army of Northeastern Virginia. Now McDowell was harassed by impatient politicians and, and prominent citizens in Washington who demanded a quick battlefield victory over the Confederate Army in Northern Virginia. Uh, McDowell was concerned about the untried nature of his army, but he was uh, reassured by President Lincoln who said, quote, you are green, it is true, but they are green also. You are all green alike, end quote. And so against his better judgment, McDowell commenced the campaign. Uh, you get a lot of this, the war will be over by Christmas type of thinking, which unfortunately you see all too often in military history. Slide. So here's a map of the movements. July 16, 1861, McDowell departed Washington uh, with 35,000 men. Now, McDowell's plan was to move westward in three columns and make a diversionary attack on the Confederate line at Bull Run Creek, which was uh, just beside Manassas, with two of his columns. The third column was to move around the Confederate right flank to the south, cutting the railway line to Richmond and threatening the Confederate rear. This assumed that the Confederates would be forced to abandon Manassas Junction and fall back to the Rappahannock River, which was the next defensible line in Virginia. McDowell faced a Confederate force eventually of about 22,000 under Beauregard encamped near Manassas Junction. Uh, that's approximately 25 miles from D.C. So three columns, two to attack the Confederates directly and one to come around on the right flank of the Confederacy and force them back. Slide. Beauregard's plan, on the other hand, was to attack to the north towards the town of Centerville. If both of the armies had been able to execute their plans simultaneously, it would have resulted basically in a mutual counterclockwise movement as they attacked each other's flank. Uh, they just simply would have rotated positions. So throughout the afternoon, this resulted in a series of highly uncoordinated Union attacks. The major focus of the battle actually became Henry House Hill. And if you go to the Manassas battlefield today, uh, the main focus, if you will, of the, uh, of the uh, tour is the Henry House Hill slide. So here you see a map of the movement of forces. And there you see Henry Hill, and in the middle of the map you can see the Henry House. So, as you might imagine, this became basically the major focus of the battle area. Now, although McDowell had arrived at a theoretically sound plan to turn the Confederate flank and force them back, it had a number of flaws. First off, it required a synchronized execution of troop movements and attacks. This was really skills that had not been developed in this nascent army, really. Secondly, it relied on prompt actions by column commanders. Remember, there were three. And unfortunately, they failed to do so, failed to react uh, and act promptly. And thirdly, McDowell had delayed long enough that reinforcements were able to arrive for Beauregard in time. 
uh, July 19th and 20th in that time frame, significant reinforcements um, bolstered the Confederate lines behind Bull Run. So these were some problems really with the first Battle of Bull Run on the Union side slide. Well, here you see Brigadier General Joseph E. Johnston. He commanded the Army of the Shenandoah. Now, this was nearly 12,000 troops in the Shenandoah Valley near the town of Winchester, Virginia. Uh, the Union forces, some had been sent down to keep him in check, but the slow movement of McDowell towards Centerville actually allowed Johnston to get his men on trains and to arrive at the battlefield in time. So once again, you see the importance of the railways, which you're going to uh, see throughout the war. Slide. So what happened? Well, the plans broke down very early. There's a famous quote by Field Marshal Helmuth von Moltke, who was the chief of the Prussian general staff during those wars of German unification, 1864 against the Danes, 1866 against the Austrians, 1870-71 in the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, if you read his original, it's a little uh, clunky 19th century uh, type of, of, uh, of uh, statement, but let me, let me focus it down to what essentially von Moltke said about plans. Quote, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, end quote. So, particularly given how raw and green both these forces were, factor that in. McDowell's plan for a surprise flank attack on the Confederates' left was poorly executed and late. The Confederates, who had been planning to attack the Union left flank, found themselves at an initial disadvantage and undermanned. However, once the Confederate reinforcements under Johnston arrived, then the course of the battle very quickly changed and began to break down for the Union. Slide. Here we see the famous Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson. He was a brigadier uh, general. Uh, he brought his Virginia brigade up in support of the disorganized Confederate forces uh, uh, on Henry Hill about noon. So they arrived on the field about noon, his brigade. So Jackson posted five regiments on the re reverse slope of Henry Hill. And what this did is it shielded them from direct fire from the Union artillery. He assembled 13 guns for his defensive lines, uh, posted them on the crest of the hill. And interestingly, as the guns fired, the recoil moved them back down the reverse slope where they could be safely uh, uh, reloaded. Uh, meanwhile, McDowell ordered some artillery batteries to move forward, and what this did was it precipitated an artillery duel between uh, Jackson's artillery and the Union artillery. The Union had 11 guns forward in a position about 300 yards across from Jackson's 13 guns. So for a while, these guns banged away at each other uh, on Henry Hill. Slide. Well, here is uh, Brigadier General Barnard B., from South Carolina. His South Carolina brigade was pressed very hard, close to breaking, and B exhorted his troops to reform by shouting, quote, there is Jackson standing like a stone wall. Let us determine to die here and we will conquer. Rally behind the Virginians, end quote. This exclamation was the source uh, for Jackson's nickname, Stonewall. Now, there's a lot of controversy over, over B's statement and intent. 
Uh, it really couldn't be clarified because he was mortally wounded very shortly afterwards, and none of his subordinate officers wrote actual reports of the battle. The um, chief of staff to General Johnson claimed that Bee was angry at Jackson's failure to come immediately to the relief of Bee's brigade while they were under heavy pressure. Uh, so it, it could have been a pejorative, something like, look at Jackson standing there like a stone wall, meaning he's just standing there and not coming to our support. But popular uh, interpretation means what we think of it today, uh, Stonewall Jackson, standing up like a stone wall. Well, for whatever reason, it certainly accrued to the benefit of, uh, of uh, Jackson. Slide. Now, in this artillery duel that emerged on Henry uh, House Hill, the Confederate artillery actually had an advantage. Union pieces um, within range of the Confederate smoothbores were predominantly rifled artillery pieces. What rifling does for artillery, it does give you more accuracy and range, but it also means you tend to go more in a straight line. And what that meant was a lot of their rounds went just right over the heads of the uh, Confederate artillery and the Confederate infantry. Whereas the uh, South had more of the older pieces that were smoothbores uh, that would fire in more of an arc, more of a ballistic arc, and therefore did quite a bit more damage. So at close range, uh, Union artillery were not particularly effective weapons. Uh, many shots just simply fired over the heads of their targets. So in this artillery duel, advantage to the south. Slide. Well, finally the Union guns were overrun about 3 p.m. by the 33rd Virginia Regiment. Now interestingly, the 33rd was outfitted in blue uniforms, which caused the commanding officer of the Union artillery to mistake them for Union troops and not fire on them. Uh, fire on them as they advanced. Uh, the close-range volleys from the 33rd Virginia and also from uh, some Confederate cavalry that attacked the flank of this artillery line killed many of the gunners and scattered the supporting infantry. So capitalizing on this success, Jackson ordered two regiments to charge the guns and capture the guns. Uh, and this really capturing of the Union guns on Henry House Hill turned the tide of the battle in the Confederates' favor. Slide. Here you see a picture of the Henry House following the battle. Uh, one of the casualties actually was the owner, 85-year-old widow Judith Carter Henry, who was an invalid and therefore unable to leave her bedroom. Uh, as the Union commanding officer began receiving rifle fire from the Confederate infantry, he concluded it was coming from the Henry House and then turned his guns on the building. Uh, and you can see what happened here. Um, uh, the widow uh, Henry was, uh, was killed in her bed and let, died later that day. Slide. So General McDowell brought then 15 regiments into the fight on the hill where he outnumbered the Confederates by about two to one. Uh, but the problem was for the North no more than two were ever engaged at the same time. So that advantage of numbers really was lost. Uh, Jackson pressed his attacks, telling his soldiers to, quote, reserve your fire until they come within 50 yards. Then fire and give them the bayonet. And when you charge, yell like furies, end quote. Uh, this was the first time the Union troops heard the famous rebel yell. 
Uh, let me um, let me inject here an interesting note about the rebel yell. Uh, I had heard for years and years and years that we didn't know what the rebel yell sounded like. No one knew. Well, many of you, I'm sure, watched the Ken Burns uh, series, The Civil War. It came out on PBS, I think, about 1990. If you haven't seen it, I most highly recommend it, Ken Burns' The Civil War. And I was watching the episode uh, on Gettysburg, and what it showed was in 1938, on the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg, they brought together at the battlefield some few remaining veterans. Now, these gents would have all been in their 90s by this time. Uh, but what they did was they had the Confederates walk across this field to that famous stone fence, which is still there, the Union folks standing behind, and when they got right up to each other, hands came across, handshake, you know, reconciliation, if you will. Well, right at this point, the old boy on the far side of the Confederate line, right in front of the camera, you heard in the background something that sounded like wahiwa. And this old boy turned to the camera and said, that's the rebel yell. Bingo, right there, there it was recorded. There was the rebel yell. Um, so that's just an interesting aspect here. Like I say, uh, for years and years and years, it was thought, um, assumed we didn't know what it sounded like. But on that hill in Northern Virginia, uh, for the first time, the Union troops heard the famous rebel yell. Slide. So here's another map as the battle progressed. At about 4 p.m., the last Union troops were pushed off the Henry House Hill, and the retreat began. Uh, the retreat was uh, relatively orderly up until you got to the crossings on the Bull Run Creek, which you can see there on the map. Uh, the crossings were poorly managed, and uh, it basically became a panic and a rout. And as the soldiers streamed uncontrollably towards the uh, town of Centerville, uh, they threw away arms and equipment. Hundreds of Union troops were taken prisoner. Uh, so uh, a disappointing result, if you will, for the North um, in the first big battle of the war. Slide. Now, expecting an easy Union victory, uh, the wealthy elite, political elite of Washington, including a lot of congressmen and senators and their families, had come out to picnic and watch the battle. But as the Union Army was driven back and a rout resulted, the roads back to Washington were blocked by panicked civilians attempting to flee in their, their carriages, and it became basically a, a chaos. The northern public was shocked at the unexpected defeat of the Army when they had expected this real easy victory. Both sides now realized that the war uh, was going to be longer and more brutal than they had imagined. Uh, July 22nd, uh, President Lincoln signed a bill that provided for the enlistment of another 500,000 men for up to three years of service. General McDowell was replaced by Major General George B. McClellan as General-in-Chief of all the Union armies. And McClellan is going to uh, uh, be a, a major player in, uh, in uh, 1861-62 as Commander-in-Chief of all the Union armies. And we'll, We'll deal with him shortly. Slide. Now, for the Confederacy, since their army, the combined armies of Beauregard and Johnston, uh, had been left pretty highly disorganized, uh, 
they didn't press their advantage. Davis arrived on the field, President Davis, and urged them on. Uh, but they just simply said, Mr. President, uh, we, we, we just simply can't. The reaction in the Confederacy actually was, was muted. Uh, there was really very little public celebration. Uh, Southerners realized that despite their, their victory, greater battles would inevitably come, greater losses for their side as well. Uh, Beauregard was considered the hero of the battle. Uh, he was promoted that day by President Davis to full general. The paradox of Manassas, it hurt both sides, uh, and it helped both sides. For the North, uh, it steeled the resolve, but created this notion of the invincibility on the battlefield of Southern forces. For the South, it was a bit of a morale boost, but it all, and it spurred feelings of victory, but the legacy of confidence was undercut. Uh, and people in the South now realize that truly, indeed, the war will not be over by Christmas. Slide. To wrap up Bull Run, well, if the war had turned out to be of short duration, uh, Bull Run would have been a disaster for the Union. Uh, it did provide a wake-up call for those optimists who had hoped uh, for or countered on a quick result. Uh, Bull Run was the second largest and bloodiest battle in American history up to that point. Uh, previously, the uh, New York uh, campaign of August 1776 in the uh, uh, War of American Independence uh, really had had that title. Uh, Union casualties, 460 killed, uh, 1,100 and some wounded, and 1,300 and some missing or captured. For the Confederates, 387 killed, about 1,600 wounded, and 13 missing. Slide. The name of the battle uh, has been controversial ever since 1861, and this is because the Union Army uh, named battles after significant rivers and creeks that played a role in the fighting, so hence the Battle of Bull Run for Bull Run Creek. Confederates generally use the names of nearby towns or farms, Therefore, the Confederates called it the Battle of First Manassas. So you're going to see all throughout the Civil War battles, the same event, but with different names. So Bull Run, First Manassas. Slide. After Bull Run, Manassas, all action really for the remainder of the war uh, was around the peripheries of the Confederacy. Uh, Union attacks captured Fort Pickens, which is there in Pensacola. Uh, there were engagements in the West, for example, in Missouri, there was the Battle of Wilson's Creek. But really, in large part, both sides recruited troops, trained, prepared for the 1862 campaigns uh, for the uh, rest of 1861. Slide. Here is a map that I'm going to show at the end of each one of our lecture sessions, the assault on the South, 1861 to 65. And I put this up because it illustrates that shrinking territory year by year of the Confederacy. And um, hopefully there's enough uh, detail there that you can actually see. But if you look um, very closely, that's exactly what you see. Year by year, uh, the Union controls much more of uh, the Confederacy. And it basically uh, is accomplishing Scott's Anaconda plan of cutting Confederacy in half, and then cutting uh, them in half once again 
meanwhile, while you're blockading the port. So I'll use this map in each lecture to uh, illustrate that unfolding of Scott's four-part anaconda, uh, anaconda plan, rather. Slide. Well, that concludes the first session, 1861, with the precipitants to the war. And um, with that, this ends our first session. Uh, we have three more sessions. Uh, look forward to having everybody view sessions two, three, and four as we move through the years of the American Civil War. If you have questions for Dr. Carpenter about the American Civil War, send them to roadieradioonline at gmail.com and we will pass them on. Up next is part two, The Grand Design. Rhodey Radio is a project of the Office of Library and Information Services and is made possible by a grant from the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities. This is Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio, online.